You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Even before winning the Nobel Prize for Literature, Bob Dylan was an American institution. With an influence stretching long beyond music, his work has long provided literary critics with material to explicate and theorize about. What was the medicine Johnny was mixing up in the basement? If one must be tangled up in a color, why must it be blue? Yet, just as he's made a career of beguiling critics and fans, Dylan himself has always resisted the categorizing gaze of scholars as well, with their self-ordained professor's tongues too serious to fool. Hello, everyone. Thanks for downloading another episode of Christian Humanist Profiles. My name is Danny Anderson, and I am an assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Pennsylvania. I also host the Sectarian Review podcast right here on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. And today I'm joined by Dr. Jeff Taylor to talk about Bob Dylan. Dr. Taylor, along with Chad Israelson, has recently uh, brought a different academic approach to Dylan's career. That is to explore the complicated personal politics of the man and the way those beliefs shape his music. Um, Dr. Taylor joins me today for a discussion about his book, The Political World of Bob Dylan, Freedom and Justice, Power and Sin. Dr. Taylor is a professor of political science at Dort College in Sioux Center, Iowa. He specializes in political thought and American political history, and his research interests include American populism, social reform movements, the nature of democracy, religion and state, subsidiarity and sphere sovereignty, social class, and world order. In addition to this book, Taylor has written Where Did the Party Go?, William Jennings Bryan, uh, Hubert Humphrey and the Jeffersonian Legacy, and also The Politics on a Human Scale, The American Tradition of Decentralism. Dr. Taylor, thanks so much for joining me today on Christian Humanist Profiles. It's a great honor to speak with you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Danny. Good, good. How's uh, the weather out there in Iowa these days? Uh, cool, but 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 not too cold, and and uh, it's not snowing, so it's not it's not bad. <laughs> Soon enough, right? Um, yep. All right. Well, before we begin, I wonder if there wasn't some divine providence in putting this show together. Uh, we've each had some circumstances that have put this interview off for the better part of a year now. And uh, lo and behold, in that delay, Dylan wins the Nobel. Uh, before we get into the politics of the man's work, do you have any thoughts on his winning that prize? And how did you become interested in him in the first place? Well, I thought it was great that he won the prize. And, and you know, I understand the... Um the argument that he's not a, a, a formal poet, uh, and you know his his uh, uh, literary output is um, obviously tied to music in a way that the previous winners uh, that has not been true for them, uh, and yet uh, to, to my mind uh, he is a poet. Uh, he's clearly a poet. He's more than a poet, and uh, and and I, I think I think it's a uh, obviously a great honor, and it's something that. Um, I think is well deserved. Uh, I became interested in Dylan um, back in uh, late 1979, and that was when he released his Slow Train Coming album, which was his first uh, Christian album. And uh, I heard "Gotta Serve Somebody" on the radio, uh, which was a, a hit single at the time. I saw him on Saturday Night Live that fall, and uh, as a result of that, not because I particularly liked his music. Um, not that I had any background in knowing who Dylan was. I grew up as a Beatles fan and, and, you know, uh, th that kind of, uh, pop rock, uh, harmonies and, and, uh, beautiful melodies, uh, was quite a long ways 
from Dylan in my mind. And, and so it wasn't his music that attracted me. It was his lyrics and the fact that he was a, uh, a musical icon who, had, who con- had converted to Christ. So I asked for the, the album for Christmas and uh, my parents gave it to me. And that was the very first Dylan album I ever listened to or, or owned. And uh, it really coincided with my own conversion um, to Christ uh, at, at about you know, somewhere between uh, three months to a year before, depending on how you want to date it. So, so really, uh, my spiritual trajectory and Dylan's um, shared a common path uh, through much of the early 1980s. I think that's great. I, th- I love when scholarly interests coincide with sort of personal development. I think that's sort of the best form of scholarship. And so that, that's actually very inspiring, very nice. Yeah. Well, one thing your book does um, that I found really interesting is that it kind of pushes back against Dylan's own famous self-mythologizing. There's always a problem with believing his statements, uh, right? And so you ground his political thought in the physical place that Robert Zimmerman was raised, uh, the Iron Range of northern Minnesota. Can you talk about that region's influence on Dylan's political ideas? Sure. And before I do that, uh, you know, I will say with his uh, uh, self-mythologizing and how, you know, he's he's notoriously a slippery interview subject uh, and you can't take uh, everything he says at face value. And I agree with all of that. Uh, But at the same time, I was kind of astounded when I looked at the uh, output of his interviews in the mid to late 1980s, what he had to say uh, in terms of his view of – his faith and religion in general and God, um, really, they were they were much more revealing and straightforward than I expected. Sometimes you have to read between the lines, um, but it was interesting. There was kind of a, a small time period where he was more open um, to being a, a little more honest about that. And even as the window was closing, uh, I was able to uh, glean a lot from those 1980s interviews to, to uh, uh, prove, I think, s- successfully in the book, uh, that, that his Christianity was not a passing phase, uh, which is, is the general assumption that, that he was a Christian for a few years and then he moved on. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's true. Um, so on the one hand, I, I do take his words seriously, but then on, on the other hand, as, as you point out, um, he, he's full of a lot of riddles. He's, he's full of a lot of evasions uh, when he's talking, especially about himself. So we tried to ground it um, in history as, as much as we could and uh, try to be as, uh, as fair and as, as objective as we could be. And so, yes, my co-author, Chad Israelson, who's a historian uh, – from Minnesota, um, he wrote the first half of the book, and it deals with essentially the first half of Dylan's life, and goes back into the um, Iron Range in northern Minnesota, specifically. It's the northeast corner of the state uh, where they um, had had iron ore and other minerals that they mined, and and you know he grew up in a in a um, in that place as a distinct minority, so he was Jewish. He uh, there there were not a lot of Jews in in his community. Uh, he was born in Duluth. There was a, a little bit bigger Jewish community there, and then they moved to Hibbing, a uh, smaller town. Uh, fewer Jews there, and in the whole state of Minnesota, it was a, a very small minority. Uh, grew up with a um, a cross section of. Um, different ethnicities, a lot of Scandinavians in that part of the state as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think his his concern for the underdog 
really was formed by those early years in the Iron Range, where uh, you had had a lot of labor activists who were pushing back against uh, corporate uh, East Coast out-of-state control uh, of those mines, and uh, and in addition to that, you've got the you know the Jewish minority thing going on. So I think uh, I think a lot of that uh, early concern for those who were maybe kept down. Um, who were, you know, fighting against the man. Um, they sound like cliches, but I think it's something that he experienced uh, probably on a daily uh, basis as a kid growing up. Yeah, and you can see how that, uh, it's more of a, an attitude rather than a specific policy uh, towards authority and power, right? You can see That's how right. that is um, uh, uh, formed in that sort of an environment. I happen to live in sort of former coal country of Pennsylvania right now. And folks are sort of used to outsiders coming in and manipulating them and, and, and using them for their own profits. And so there is this sort of natural uh, resistance to those sorts of forces. That's right. And, and even beyond the, you know, the economic exploitation and kind of the political, um, you know, dominance, uh, I think there's even uh, a resistance, there has to be, um, to kind of people looking down their noses at them, kind of a snobbishness. And you get some of this, you know, uh, even, even in the presidential races, right, coming up every so often of the deplorables and the irredeemables <laughs> and the, the people clinging to their guns and religion. It, it's kind of urban elites um, looking down upon, you know, the masses who are not as well educated, who aren't as well traveled and, and all of that. And I, and I, and I think, I think he, he's always had that vibe as well. Yeah. And it's this sort of programmatic form of, um, liberalism that I think that's where he finds his, uh, a place to resist, uh, as we'll talk about here, uh, maybe right now, uh, this is a good transition to the next question. Um, Dylan was first a darling and then kind of a traitor to the new left, uh, in the 1960s. Let's talk about that contentious relationship if you can. Uh, why did he distance himself from the political moment, uh, or movement that embraced him and then really kind of helped make his career? Sure. Well, you know, um, he was affiliated with the new left uh, beginning in the uh, early 1960s, even a little bit of the old left, uh, you know, uh, secondhand through, say, um, Woody Guthrie, right. Uh, right. Pete Seeger, um, in terms of maybe like more like labor unions, even even flirting with, uh, uh, you know, in the in the case of uh, of um, uh, Seeger and Guthrie, even the Communist Party back in the Depression years. Right. So. He, he was uh, a little bit connected with that when he began his career, um, partly as a protest singer, right? And he's updating uh, what Seeger and Guthrie had done, and, and, and um, Dylan is kind of ripping headlines from the newspapers, making it a little more contemporary. Um, but I think very early on, uh, the rising new left that, that really got started more in intellectual circles, um, people like C. Wright Mills and Dwight McDonald and, and uh, early Noam Chomsky and, and folks like that, connecting um, not just traditional economic concerns, but, but, but tapping into civil rights and tapping into the peace movement, uh, resisting um, the emphasis on uh, you know, uh, nuclear weapons and then eventually the Vietnam War. I think that... Uh, that was something that he he sincerely believed in those things, but he never wanted to be the leader of a movement. He never wanted to be pigeonholed. He never wanted to be held up as some kind of a cardboard uh, cutout of himself, uh, especially by the media. Uh, but I think even among the you know the the, the groups of like-minded um, uh, 
political activists. Uh, on the one hand, he felt a certain kinship with them, but uh, at the same time, I think uh, as an individual, a, a very private, uh, sensitive, um, uh, introverted individual, um, that did not um, was not a good fit for him to be to be uh, you know held up as the leader of this movement. So so I think there was a, a genuine connection. Um, but both for personal reasons, and then I, I think eventually for uh, for ideological reasons too, um, he just felt that it was too suffocating, too um, uh, too defining in a way that that uh, he was not comfortable with. And, and same thing with the counterculture that developed later in the mid and late 1960s, kind of the hippie movement. Uh, yeah, they loved Dylan, and and yes, he inspired them in many ways. Um, but at the same time. Um, he, he did not want to be uh, the, the, the hippie leader. And, and so he, he eventually gets out from under that and turns into a much more traditionalist kind of family man uh, late in that decade. Yeah, that's an interesting um, turn that he makes, that, that utter rejection. I mean, he literally goes off the grid there for a while. Um, and yeah. as you're talking, I'm reminded there's this pretty famous press conference. I think it was in San Francisco. Allen Ginsberg is sitting in the audience, I remember. Uh, and, and you have these folks who are pretty staunchly new left asking him all these questions. And he's sort of just joking his way through that press conference. It's really kind of funny, actually. His uh, utter amusement um, is pretty funny. Um, and I wonder if there's something that he recognized in that kind of cultural elitism that that all, even though he may have agreed with the political stances that these folks took uh, on various issues of civil rights and justice, their style <laughs> perhaps reminded him yes. too much. I don't yeah. know if you can follow that up. No, I, I think that's right. And I think, um, you know, he burned bridges with, with you know, the left of, of various sorts uh, in the famous um, – you know, people have described it as a meltdown when he accepted the Tom Paine Award from the uh, National Emergency uh, Civil Liberties right. um, Committee um, that, that Corliss Lamont, who who was very leftist, I mean, to the point where he was he was allied with the Communist Party. And yet he was the son of uh, uh, Thomas Lamont, who was a uh, senior partner of J.P. Morgan, the biggest investment bank in, the, in uh, New York uh, at the time. So, um, you know, Lamont was, uh, uh, yeah, he was a radical, and yet he was doing a lot of this with his dad's money and uh, was, was very much into respectability. And Dylan just hated that. He, he, he hated that, uh, you know, because he felt there was a disconnect, a hypocrisy, a you know, how can you claim to be speaking for the, you know, the, the, the uh, oppressed, um, you know, uh, blacks in the South when you're living in a penthouse in New York and you're, you know, you're, you're whining and dining your rich white friends. I mean, he, he, uh, he you know, in, in Greenwich Village, it was much more of a, um, um, you know, mixed community, a very earthy, uh, obviously folky community that he hung out with. And, and I think he just could not relate to that kind of, I don't know if it's upper East side, upper West side, whatever, wherever it is in Manhattan. I, I think um, his, his life in Greenwich village and, and his previous life in Minnesota was just too far removed from that. Yeah. And I think he recognizes a kind of authoritarianism in that political approach to uh, just sort of tr trying to, through policy, trying to solve social problems rather than, uh, in sort of human, <laughs> like in truly liberal uh, f fashions. That's that's right. Because uh, again, you know, one of the points we make in this book is that uh, there are different threads 
running through Dylan's life. Pe- you know, people talk about the incarnations, the different uh, faces of Bob Dylan, the different personas that he's adopted. And, and that's all true. But there is a consistency. If you get past the superficial, you get past the packaging, there is a consistency, uh, particularly in, in his politics, uh, that you can find. He always uh, supported the underdog. He always questioned those uh, with power. He always subscribed to certain uh, universal, uh, even sacred truths, you could say. And, and as, as you look at these things, um, yeah, you, you see that he, he – uh, it, it was never about uh, some kind of political platform or joining a party or passing a law for him. That was never what it was about. It was about justice. It was about freedom. Um, it was about truth. It was it was about uh, universal um, concepts in terms of how people live their lives. And uh, that transcends politics. And so the, really, we describe him as an anarchist from start to finish and not a doctrinaire anarchist. Uh, he wasn't writing manifestos, but it was a, a, a type of anarchism or uh, you could say in the Catholic worker tradition of, of Dorothy Day, mm. uh, a type of personalism where you change the world by how you live and how you treat other people. That that has really always been the key for Dylan. Uh, you can't evade personal responsibility by uh, sloughing it off onto a politician or, or trying to, uh, uh, you know, codified into law. Boy, that's a lesson we could learn today. <laughs> Doesn't it? That seems like a valuable uh, uh, model for us to follow. Um, well, Dylan's slippery politics become kind of visible, pretty really visible in the way that your book talks about his ideas about Barry Goldwater. I found that to be really just kind of fascinating. Can you talk about how Goldwater both inspired and repulsed the young protest singer and do his statements about Goldwater in a way predict the difficulty in categorizing him politically? And does he even care enough about politics to categorize him categorize him at all? Uh, he does care enough about politics for us to categorize him, although he doesn't categorize himself. And I, and I doubt that if he would read our book, he would... Re- well, I'd like to think he'd appreciate some of it, but, but uh, you know, he'd probably resent the fact that we even wrote a book. In fact, his, his people in New York, when we asked for permission to quote his lyrics, we were given an absolute no. And uh, th- that happened uh, twice because we appealed the decision, uh, trying to go up the ladder a little bit further, and, and we got a second uh, door closed. And they said, um, no books on politics. Dylan is not interested in books on his politics. And so um, he doesn't want to be categorized. And yet I think he does care enough about politics that, that the rest of us uh, are going to draw some conclusions. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but it's, it's how you define politics. It's not narrowly. It's not electoral politics. It's politics is, is, is uh, much more broad and, it, and it's focusing on the, on the question of power. So I haven't answered your Goldwater question, but I think you had a follow-up. Yeah, well, uh, as you're saying that, just so you know, I mean, he won't call the Nobel Committee back <laughs> after they're trying to award him the prize. So I saw that. So, it, so maybe it's not personal. I, uh, it made me feel a little better. You're in good company. But, uh, go that's ahead. right. That's right. So, so with Barry Goldwater, um, we – all we knew about Dylan's uh, attitudes toward Goldwater was, was a reference or two in, in uh, some of his uh, early to mid 60s songs. And uh, they were like joking references. Um, and, and one of them is kind of, you know, pointing out a little bit of the um, intolerance uh, of, uh, of liberals saying, you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm liberal, but to a degree. I want everybody to be free 
But if you think I let Barry Goldwater move in next door marry my daughter, you must think I'm crazy. I wouldn't let him do it for all the farms in Cuba. You know, what's even there is kind of a neat little, uh, you know, pricking of, of, of a little bit of the hypocrisy, right, of, of the mainstream liberals. He wouldn't do it for all the farms in Cuba. Oh, that's the Exactly, exactly. So, you know, uh, but, but this is the genius of Bob Dylan. A, li- a little line that's in some ways a throwaway line, it actually contains a lot. And he does it in a um, kind of a whimsical or good-natured way, but he's making a serious point. Um, so, you know, he, he's, he's, he's making a little bit of fun there of, of Goldwater as the boogeyman. Um, but generally speaking, you wouldn't think that, that he would be somebody Dylan would identify with. I mean, he, he uh, voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. He wasn't known as a champion of, of uh, Martin Luther King or the civil rights movement in general. He uh, was supported by a lot of John Birchers when he ran for president in 1964, whereas uh, Dylan uh, dismissed them, you know, with with uh, funny references and songs, wrote a whole song about the subject of of uh, this, this anti-communist uh, hysteria. Right. So you wouldn't think that this is somebody that Dylan would like. And yet in 2004, when he comes out with his first installment of his memoirs, uh, Chronicles, he identifies Barry Goldwater as his favorite politician of the 1960s. Now, some people thought, is he joking? I don't think he was joking. I think, I think in comparison to Lyndon Johnson, um, I think there was something in Goldwater that Dylan at the time could respect. Even when he disagreed with him, I think he could see an authenticity and honesty, uh, a principled consistency with Goldwater – Whereas Johnson was just another lying liberal hack and uh, it was probably much more offensive. Uh, In fact, we know that um, because in in one of his, uh, I think it was liner notes for maybe biograph, uh, Dylan refers to uh, Johnson saying we shall overcome in one of his speeches uh, celebrating a civil rights law. And uh, to Dylan, that was like obscene because, you know, Johnson – and I think correctly, uh, didn't have any genuine personal concern about black people or civil rights. It was all political for him. And I think that's where he could identify with Goldwater despite um, disagreeing with a lot of policy positions. And, and you know, the, the only other thing I can think of of why he would have an affinity for Goldwater is that uh, Goldwater did represent a certain libertarian kind of vibe in a Christian way. It wasn't uniformly applied. He was less concerned about liberty for, uh, you know, people who weren't part of his political coalition, right? Um, but I think Dylan might have respected that as well, kind of his uh, shoot from the hip um, willingness to 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 be a straight talker and to uh, uh, care about freedom, even even though it was a selective caring. Yeah, in that figure, I, I feel like one kind of common thread throughout Dylan's career is this sort of search for transcendence uh, out of the machines of, of politics or culture or yes. anything else. And yes. Lyndon Johnson is sort of uh, one of the penultimate figures of a, a person of the machine, of the, uh, you know, he's a political animal, right? And so exactly. I, that makes perfect sense that he would sort of choose Goldwater on a personal level. Right, right, exactly. Well, our listeners are, as you might guess, deeply interested in religion, and your book delves into those influences quite heavily. 
can we begin by talking about the influence that his Jewishness played in forming that worldview? And I know that may not have been your section of the book, but if you can uh, give us a little bit of insight there, that'd be great. Sure. Um, well, that, you know, as, as I said earlier, uh, the fact that um, uh, Jews in, in, you know, both his local community and in his state, but also in the nation, um, were a relatively small minority. Um, I, I do think that that uh, did shape his um, outlook. I think it made him a little bit more um, naturally sympathetic to uh, uh, people who were maybe on the outs or maybe on the margins, uh, people that uh, uh, you know were faced with discrimination and um, uh, unfairness and things like that. So I think that that certainly was part of it. Um, you know, growing up, sometimes Dylan's family is described as um, um, being secular um, Jews, and uh, you know, not they weren't Orthodox Jews. They 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 weren't uh, particularly um, uh, religious, perhaps. Um, we have a quote in the book that, uh, according to uh, Bob's mother, uh, Beatty Zimmerman, uh, Bob quote has always been religious. That the Bible was always around the house. Uh, she said later on, and this is after he becomes famous. Um, that as a child, Bob attended all the churches around Hibbing, and he was very interested in, in religion and all religions, by no means just his own. So I'm sure that they did take place, uh, or, or I'm sure that his upbringing did take place um, in the context of, of some participation with the local synagogue and, and, and all of that. But it's interesting that um, one of the things that I had not realized until um, my co-author Chad had, had investigated this is that when he was young, uh, Dylan spent some of his uh, summers in Wisconsin uh, attending a Jewish summer camp that had a Zionist focus. Uh, it was called the Herzl Camp uh, after Theodore Herzl. And um, that's something that, uh, like I say, I, I had not been aware of. And, and Chad tracked down um, somebody, uh, Jerry Waldman is his name, who still works with the camp. And, and he uh, shared a cabin with Dylan um, during that period. You know, this this took place in the 1950s that he was going to this camp, which um, was less than 10 years after the modern state of Israel was founded in 1948. So so this was a new thing. And and the camp, uh, you know, involved um, uh, music, Jewish folk songs, dances. And uh, it, it, was, it wasn't primarily of a religious nature. It wasn't promoting Judaism. It was promoting Zionism. Um, but nevertheless, that is... Uh, is going to be part of, of who Dylan is. Now, he doesn't end up becoming um, a Zionist. I, I don't see any um, evidence of that. There, there were rumors over the years in the 1960s and 70s and after. Uh, I don't see that. I couldn't find it um, in the documentation. Uh, but nevertheless, I think that um, ethnic part of his, of his upbringing uh, definitely influenced him. Yeah, I'm almost, by being someone who is kind of born on the margins of a community, right? It probably instilled that um, perspective and a sympathy for that perspective that you can see how that could carry through um, his empathy for other uh, marginalized folks, right? So That's right. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. And the, the bit about the Zionist camp was, uh, that was a revelation to me too, because you, I mean, talk about like a political agenda. I mean, that is sort of signing on to a doctrinaire uh, belief system, right? And, and it's, yeah. uh, it's interesting. He seems to flirt with that early on, but never pursues it. And, and that, that, was, uh, that was fascinating. No, it, it, you know, it didn't take, but, but I'm guessing uh, the, the kind of the social experiences 
that he had in that context. And, and like I say, not so much the political or the nationalist, but more the ethnic um, and even, you know, kind of watered down um, religiosity that, 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 you know, was found within the Zionist movement. Um, yeah, I do think that some of that stuff st- did stick with him. Yeah. Well, um, one fascinating uh, move that the book makes is, and now we're getting into his conversion to Christianity, is you situate his conversion in the context of the Niebuhr brothers, and particularly Richard's, uh, Richard Niebuhr's uh, Christ and Culture. Uh, can you talk us through the cultural mechanics of his conversion a little bit? Yeah. You know, um, part of, one of the things I do in, in the book toward the end is I, I, uh, I look at his conversion um, it was, uh, as, as is often the case for many of us, I guess, uh, whether, whether we, you know, ha- come to a sincere, um, you know, uh, trust in Christ early on, or if it comes later and, and sometimes it's more dramatic, sometimes it isn't, but, but usually there's some kind of a, you know, a progression and evolution. And, and in the case of Dylan, uh, it was late in 1978. He was on tour. Uh, somebody threw a, a silver cross uh, up on the stage while he's performing. It catches his eye. Uh, he puts it on. It uh, and, and, and it meant something to him. And then uh, uh, later on, he describes um, in Tucson uh, a spiritual experience in a, in a motel room. Uh, and this is also, you know, probably. November, December, uh, 78, late in the year. And then at some point early in 1979, um, one of his former girlfriends, um, puts him into contact with, um, pastors for a Southern California, uh, church known as, as uh, vineyard. And eventually, um, the churches, there, there were a handful in Southern California at the time, these vineyard churches, eventually they become a, a de facto denomination that we call vineyard Christian fellowship, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's still around today. Uh, but those pastors talk to Dylan, answer some questions that he has. Uh, they pray with him at a certain point, then he's baptized and he, and he spends weeks, uh, going to a discipleship, uh, school, through the vineyard as well. And they teach him, uh, well, lots of different things about the Bible, but, but, uh, one of the, the subjects that they emphasized at the time, uh, was a whole premillennial eschatology, which is a study of the end times, um, the, the second coming and that sort of thing, uh, really. And Hal Lindsey was part of that vineyard movement at the time as well. And so, um, and he had, he had just had a best selling book uh, earlier in the decade, um, the late great planet earth it sold millions. It was a huge seller and, and very influential in evangelical Christian circles. So I place him in this context and I say, um, the fact that this is how he was converted, it wasn't through mainstream Roman Catholicism. It wasn't through a Jerry Falwell, highly politicized evangelicalism or fundamentalism. It wasn't through, uh, you know, his local Presbyterian or Methodist church of some kind of, you know, liberal Protestantism. The fact that it was vineyard and in Southern California, kind of a charismatic um, evangelical, but anti-cultural or, or um, yeah, it's really Christ against culture is the position that, that uh, uh, they exemplified. It was, it was a, uh, uh, it was a holdover from the, um, or it was a, extension of the Jesus people movement right. from the late sixties, early seventies. So kind of a hippie Christianity that was not out to form a moral majority and elect Ronald Reagan president that they didn't care about that. They, they have kind of an otherworldliness to them that dovetailed with Dylan's natural anarchism. 
and, and so I make the point that that he he, he switches from uh, a an anarchist and he becomes a Christian anarchist. But in many ways, his politics stay similar. But it does uh, it deepens and it widens as he becomes familiar with with um, um, fellow Christians and with Scripture and and you know his own personal spiritual life deepens. So so it 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 made it made a huge difference that he he is coming out of this Jesus movement. Um, kind of a latter-day Jesus movement, uh, rather than some other form of Christianity. And I don't get the impression that this is like a progr- what we would call today like a progressive Christianity. Because I mean, even if you listen uh, the, to the album you you talked about, inspiring you with you got to serve somebody, uh, slow train coming. Um, yep. There's like an Old Testament fire and brimstone uh, feel to that uh, theology that you see in those songs. And so even though it, it is sort of um, against culture, it, it's, it, it is not like a soft and fuzzy uh, form of Christianity. It's a rather hard-edged one that comes through in his music, at least. Very much so, and and but but that's part of the rejection of the dominant culture. So it wasn't, it wasn't the, right, it wasn't the Episcopalian church who in the in the mid 1970s decides to ordain women because the feminist movement has become sufficiently respectable mm. right it's it's much more that uh, they're not following they're not aping the dominant respectable culture uh, they're challenging it especially on sexual mores and uh, but but it goes the other ways too you know in some ways it seems conservative but in some ways it it well with his leftist persona because it also rejects uh, the worship of mammon. It rejects greed. It rejects uh, capitalism in, in at least uh, some of its its uh, uh, forms. Uh, you know, the materialism. So, yeah, and 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 in war, patriotism. You know, there, there's a kind of a. This is where his his ideology, especially after he becomes a Christian, really transcends the left right spectrum, because um, this is exactly what you would expect to see if, if you're going to overlay the, the political and social perspective of the kingdom of God, you wouldn't expect it to, to line up perfectly with some earthly worldly um, ideology. And, and it doesn't. And and uh, and I think there. Um, Dylan is is uh, being a more consistent Christian than many of us in in recognizing that in some things you're going to sound very liberal and in other things you're going to sound very conservative. Uh, I think you know that's probably something that resonates strongly with our listeners to, uh, to this podcast. Um, and also, I, I it doesn't seem to me. I mean, on one level, I can understand an argument that would suggest that this kind of um, his conversion to Christianity is incompatible with the Dylan who's saying, with God on our side, for example, uh, uh, which is kind of uh, a, jo- a jabbing at Christian culture. Oh, my name, it ain't nothing. My age, it means less. The country I come from is called the Midwest. I start and brought up there The laws to abide And that the land that I live in Has God on its side um, 
Yeah. And yet the way you're describing it, it there does seem to be a consistency uh, with what on the surface seems to be polar opposite political and, and, and cultural assumptions. That's right. And, and you know, there, there, there are some things, especially on the Slow Train Coming album, um, that were that were kind of jingoistic. And, and, and it was noticed at the time, um, both by some Christians and, and uh, you know, Paul Williams, who, who's a great uh, a, a great um, rock music journalist and, and huge Dylan fan, uh, wrote about this at the time, too. I think and, you know, and, 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 and Williams, I think, was correct. Uh, Williams knew Dylan. He was a friend of Dylan. And I think uh, I think Williams interpreted this correctly. He he said, you know, Dylan's trying to regain his uh, kind of voice in the in the larger American society by by putting on the garb that that most people still identified him him with, not not as the rock superstar, but as the as the social protest singer of the early 60s, somebody who had a message, kind of a prophet. And he was going to he was going to use that persona now as a way to uh, preach Christ uh, to the nation and to the world. And um, in, in, in so doing, uh, he he's makes an album that really is, is social commentary on America in the late 1970s. And some of the lines that he comes up with as a new believer, I think were clunky. Um, <laughs> yeah. some, you know, and, and uh, talking a little bit about, uh, you know, Slow Train, for example, the title song, a great song, but um, but you know, it's got it, it's got some kind of jingoistic um, language about uh, um, Arabs and 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 uh, nose rings and 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 uh, uh, destroying America and uh, uh, you know, in foreign elites. And- All that foreign oil controlling American soil. Look around you; it's just bound to make you embarrassed. Sheiks walking around like kings, wearing fancy jewels and those rings, deciding America's future from Amsterdam into Paris. And as it snows, slow trains coming, around You know, I, I think some of that rang true, and and and, and is something he actually believed, um, but it sounded a lot more. Uh, patriotic and kind of nationalistic than I think he intended. Uh, he was trying to get at the spiritual truths underneath it and uh, ends up coming off sounding a little bit like Jerry Falwell at times, uh, <laughs> who, who he really had very little affinity for. Yeah, and all of these almost adopting the other end of that uh, Barry Goldwater spectrum uh, that we talked about earlier there. Uh, exactly. And I think, you know, what, what you find with Dylan is that um, – you know, really, the, the the it's amazing how quickly he matured, not only in his spiritual understanding, but in his uh, ability to uh, write a little bit more poetically about some of these subjects. By the time he's being interviewed and writing songs by the mid-1980s, just, you know, four or five years later, he does a much better job. He hits the same issues, but he does it with much more nuance and depth and in a way that isn't off-putting and, and isn't uh, one-dimensional. Yeah, and like we talked about, it, it seems like he's always, from the beginning of his career, trying to push his audience, uh, his 
the audience that is sort of fawning over him, keep them, keeping them at arm's length, right? And yet, and so this causes him to go through these permutations that seem incompatible with one another. And yet, if you look at the Dylan of today, for example, the persona, and I think you guys talk about this in the book, um, the, the persona that he carry, that he puts forth today is this sort of 1930s troubadour sort of, uh, for even with the hats that he wears, I think this, I think I, I think I remembered reading this in the book. Um, and so that kind of thirties radicalism, um, I mean, Woody Guthrie as a communist also had sort of the Christian, uh, I mean, this is why he didn't join the communist party (laughs) because they wouldn't, he wouldn't give up his Christian beliefs. Right. And so he's, he's situated himself in a moment in political history that kind of makes sense of all these um, conflicting identities, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's right. And and it's, um, you know, even though his Christianity, and, and, and this is, you know, I, I spend, uh, this, this is a much smaller book than my politics on a human scale. It, it, uh, it, it's uh, about half the, half the size of that book. So we had to, we had to cut, cut, cut toward the end um, to fit, uh, to, to fit in with our uh, word count deadline, and uh, as a result of that, I couldn't I couldn't be as um, uh, detailed as I wanted to be. But I, but one of the things I do is I look at um, how how much did Dylan hang on to his uh, spiritual beliefs uh, after 1979 and 1980, 1981? Yeah. Did he yeah. revert back to just kind of a secular mindset? Did he did he embrace uh, Orthodox Judaism instead? Um, did he create his own religion? And, and I don't think he did any of the, any of those things. Um, he had connections in different ways. Uh, but I think he was into able to integrate his, his past life, his past friendships, his, his social circles, his, his, uh, other concerns with his newfound faith in a way that, um, and he combined it with, um, becoming very wary of the media, uh, turning him into this, uh, poster child for, um, born again Christianity, and and even though he was born again, and even though he used that language early on, uh, by the mid 1980s he says, "Oh, that's just a media term." I I never said that. Of course, he did say that, but um, because he 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 does not. It, it, it's the same kind of thing in the as as in the 60s. He did not want to be um, uh, pigeonholed, backed into a corner, because then and he he says this himself, because then the media can dismiss you. You know, okay, you, you, this is the born again singer, and and then they don't have to actually listen to what you're saying. They don't they don't have to take you seriously. So, it, as a result of all of those things, uh, it it does make it sound uh, from from uh, somebody who isn't listening carefully, or they're looking at this from a distance, that, that Dylan, uh, you know, is 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 the ex Christian singer. Um, but I think it, it's all there. It, he never gives it up. Uh, as recently as just a couple of years back in his interview with Rolling Stone, he makes it very plain. He, he, he refers to uh, Judas as, uh, as somebody who, um, you know, crucified our Lord. Um, that's not something an Orthodox Jew would say. It's not something an atheist would say. Um, and I think as a result of that um, ongoing faith, um, his politics has remained uh, multi-dimensional in a way that uh, even in the 1960s, when he, you know, could simultaneously uh, be friends with uh, Pete Seeger, but also admire Barry Goldwater, um, 
he had he had multidimensionality back then, but I think uh, in the 1980s you just you just see that uh, uh, taken to a whole nother level. And I st- I think he still has it, which is why you know it'd be hard. To, people would say, well, well, where's Dylan on the spectrum today? Where you know what would Dylan say about politics if he were to talk about the election, for example? Um, I think privately he probably has a lot of thoughts on it, but it, it's not something he's going to share publicly. Yeah, and I don't know that it would be much different than anything he would have said in the 60s uh, about, I mean, he, he's suspicious of these institutional structures, and he's his part of the motivation behind these uh, uh, persona uh, reinventions is to sort of keep himself free from the limitations that those institutional structures place on one as an artist. Right, and no, no, no politician's going to save us. No president's going to save us. He would say that, you know, I, I think he knows who, who, who's going to save us if we're going to be saved. Uh, we need to be redeemed. It's not going to be through uh, Clinton or Trump. Um, and yet, um, you know, with, with, with the different politicians and the parties today, um, there are elements um, of various positions where you could say are Dylan-esque, right? And, he, and even Trump, uh, which, which I'm, I'm sure many people would find offensive, and yet I think it's true. I think some of the things he admired about Goldwater, I think some of those things uh, would even resonate uh, with somebody who is uh, uh, dis- so universally despised by the elites of our day as Donald Trump. And you could say deservedly so, or maybe not deservedly so, but either way, I think Dylan, um, even, even Trump's emphasis on um, uh, uh, opposition to economic globalization. There, there's there's a section in in uh, the, the last chapter dealing with Dylan, and 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 coming from a kind of a colonialism in the iron ore range in Minnesota, all the way up through the 1980s, where he's really um, in speaking in, in almost a prophetic way about globalization as it was just getting underway at the time, but but years before NAFTA and and, and WTO and, and TPP. Dylan was warning about that outsourcing, cheap labor, uh, not something humanitarian, but a type of internationalism that's really imperialism. It's really exploitative on a political and economic level, drags us into wars we shouldn't be involved in. And it's pushed by, you know, New York bankers and, 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 uh, and big corporations. Um, as odd as it seems, uh, Trump is the populist candidate in this race, uh, not, not, not uh, the Democratic nominee. Yeah, uh, and it's one of the the great ironies of our time. Um, We're approaching wrapping up, um, but I I do want to talk about the book's closing chapter, as you you mentioned here, which tries to see where he fits into our modern political moment. And I think you've already kind of suggested some of the complicated ways in which we might not like how he fits in. Uh, uh, But he doesn't seem to fit very well at all because of our polarization. Um, One particular section discusses his somewhat surprising views about sexual ethics and freedom. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that, but why doesn't he fit so neatly into the boxes of political identity that we've constructed for ourselves? Yeah, well, well, you know, you'd think, um, I think people would would assume if they haven't followed Dylan's career closely, but they just know him from like blowing in the wind and the times they are changing and that he's saying at the, uh, the March in Washington where King gave his I, I, I have a dream speech, they would assume, oh, he's a liberal Democrat. But he's not a liberal Democrat. He, he has elements of liberalism to him, certainly. Um, he's not a Democrat. He's not a Republican. He's probably not even independent. I, I doubt that he even votes. Um, but if you're an anarchist, and specifically if you're a Christian anarchist, even, even though you don't use that label yourself, 
Um, you wouldn't expect him to be an enthusiast of either of the major parties or, or probably any of the minor parties either. And, uh, and I think that's true. And, and, and so as a result of that, um, one of my, one of my um, aspirations was try to, try to find some kind of um, politician in, in, in relatively recent American history that would have a Dylan-esque vibe to them. Not on a personal level. They didn't go out with a guitar or, or you know, uh, and, and do concerts or write songs, but, but somebody in terms of their thought. And, and uh, you know, it was hard to do. I talk a little bit about uh, Goldwater, but then also McGovern, um, opposite sides of the spectrum. And yet I think there's elements of both that, that Dylan could relate to, uh, had some appreciation for, and he expressed publicly some appreciation for both of those men. Um, I end up coming up with um, two relatively obscure figures, uh, Harold Hughes, who was a senator from Iowa, uh, a liberal Democrat, and then uh, uh, Mark Hatfield, who was a liberal Republican uh, from Oregon. And uh, both were, were, were strong uh, Christians, uh, evangelical in their faith, um, not, a, not anarchists per se. And yet when you look at what they had to say about the political system and, and uh, uh, the, how the spiritual intersects with the political, uh, they do have an anarchist um, uh, sensibility, at least, understanding that, that government can only go so far. And, and it's important, and, and it was worth pursuing as careers for, for both of them. They, they, they were governors and senators from their, their states. Um, and yet, in the end, the, the spiritual understanding um, overrode the political for both of those men. So I, I would say, um, you know, if, if, if I could think of anybody from since the 1960s, I think it would be Hatfield and Hughes that would be uh, probably closest to, to um, uh, being Dylan-esque in, in, in how they express their faith. Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, I, I want to. I didn't put this in the script, and so I'm kind of th throwing this on you a little bit. And I know yeah. you talked about Slow Train coming already. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite Dylan album, if not that one? Or in <laughs> addition to that one, maybe. Oh boy! You know what? I've, I've uh, Chad and I since for years we we were both big Dylan fans, and so uh, one time we made a list of all of our favorite albums. We, I think we ranked them all. Uh, but now that you put me on the spot, I'm not sure that I can remember what my, I, you know, I would say, um, one of my favorite albums, uh, ranks right up there. Um, even above slow train coming, although I love slow train coming would be Oh mercy that, uh, that came out in the uh, late eighties. And, and there you can still see, um, you know, Dil Dylan's Christianity isn't as submerged as it's going to be later, like 10 years down the road. You can still see it, and yet uh, he does such a beautiful job of um, of merging it with the social and the political. Which you know, I mean, the very first song is is uh, uh, political world, which is you know, we, we we borrow that for the title of the book, right? We live in a political world. Love don't have any place. We live in times where men commit crimes and crime don't have a face. We live in a political world Icicles hanging down Wedding bells ring and angels sing And clouds cover up the ground And so, um, but he does it in a way that, that is, um, 
you know, really uh, spiritually sophisticated. And uh, yeah, I, I love Oh Mercy. So that's that's certainly in the top three of my favorite albums. But but there there are so many. It's, it's, <laughs> that, that, yeah. I, I, every, every Dylan album has some some um, redeeming quality for me. I had actually not ever given that a listen until reading the book. You guys mentioned that that song, the Political World, especially. So I I did go back and listen to that album, and and it is actually quite remarkable. Um, his '80s output is often. Um, uh, underappreciated, I think. And yeah. I think Jonathan Lethem a few years ago wrote an essay uh, defending Dylan's sort of 1980s output. And th- as you're talking, I'm just reminded of, I wish I had gone back and read that again uh, in preparation for this interview. But there is something to be salvaged out of what is generally seen as one of his sort of downtimes in his career. Yeah, yeah. Well, at Old Mercy for for the 80s, that, that was uh, seen... That has a higher reputation, even at the time with critics. It was seen as, as uh, a bit of a comeback, at least. Um, so it, it's it's always been he, he teams up with um, uh, Daniel. Uh, I don't know if it's Lanois, Lan Lanois. I'm not sure how he pronounces it, but the uh, uh, the producer and they recorded it down in New Orleans. It kind of has a his swampy. Um, eerie sound to it, and and really, I, I, I like "Political World" uh, as a song, but but there's 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 better songs on the album too, of a man in the long black coat, um, uh, "Shooting Star," um, "Everything Is Broken," "Everything Is Broken" is great, and, and that that sums up Dylan's view of, <laughs> of the fallen world as well as anything, and, it, and he does it in a catchy way. Yeah, yeah, um, that, that's great. And he's not yet lusting over Alicia Keys as he does. <laughs> no. That's right. That would come later. Although that that Thunder on the Mountain is a great song too. Uh, one, one of the better of his latter day songs. It is. Um, yeah, I would have to say mine. Um, I, I have one historical sort of favorite is Blood on the Tracks. I've always loved that album. Uh, the, sure. kind of the personal, I think, is is very evident in there, and I, and I love that album. But in revisiting his music over the last few months because of this. Um, reading this book, I've also grown a great amount or had a great amount of admiration for another side of Bob Dylan, which is when he begins to make that break from the new left. Um, and he yes. has all these, that's where the jokey song about Barry Goldwater comes in. Um, uh, Chimes of Freedom, which isn't necessarily as overtly, it's not the new left version of, of, of liberation for sure. Uh, but also my back pages is the one where he really, um, uh, makes his statement about his kind of, uh, moving on from that kind of political world. Crimson flames tied through my ears, rolling high and mighty traps. Pounced with fire on flaming roads Using ideas as my maps We'll meet on edges Soon said I Proud neath heated brow Ah, but I was so much older then I'm younger than that now yeah, those those are great songs, and I'm thinking his Black Crow Blues on there is that where he plays piano with that. Mm, I, I, uh, there, there are so many good songs on the on on uh, on that album, and, and and like Blood on the Tracks, sounds like you're attracted to the personal yeah. albums, and and, and uh, yeah, for somebody who's who's uh, you know going through relationship problems. Suffering from depression. I mean, blood on the tracks. That's that's the album. I mean, there's 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 a glimmer. There's glimmers of light 
but boy, can can he empathize uh, with somebody who's down and out because you know he himself was at the time, right? And he does it in in a in a sad but beautiful way. Well, listeners of my podcast know all too well my anxiety and depression, so uh, this should become no surprise that that's my favorite. So, um, well, Jeff Taylor, thanks so much for uh, joining me. This was a lot of fun. Uh, this conversation, first of all, but I really do recommend this book. It's a, a terrific insight uh, into the kind of inner workings that inspire the poetry for which he's now been awarded the Nobel Prize. Uh, and, and I think it, it was just a really insightful book and a lot of fun to talk to you today. I really appreciate it. Well, I, I was happy to speak with you, Danny. I appreciate the opportunity. And, you know, I will say to, to your listeners that uh, unfortunately the book is very pricey. It was put out by an academic press and, and uh, I'm not complaining. Palgrave Macmillan is a great publisher. I enjoyed working with them, but it's pricey. Uh, and, and even even at the discount rate on, rate on Amazon, um, it's it's pricey. I would say it's worth every penny, of course. But uh, if, if it's out of your uh, ability to buy, um, you know, ask your local library or ask uh, especially college, but public libraries might be willing to do it too. ask them if they can buy it. And if they can't buy it, uh, get it through interla- interlibrary loan. So I, I really hope your listeners, if they're interested in Dylan and politics and, and religion, that, um, that that they'll check the book out. Um, uh, if, and if they can't buy it, uh, they, they can borrow it. And, and uh, we're hoping that eventually uh, the publisher will put it out in paperback in the next year or two. If, if the reviews are good and, and, and demand is sufficient, uh, hopefully it'll be more affordable. Yeah. And honestly, I feel like in this moment, I mean, academic libraries probably should stock this book. Uh, so if you're one of those yes. ilk listening to this podcast, please, uh, please put it on your, your purchase list. It is uh, a, a very nice resource uh, that in, finds the intersection between poetry and politics in, in terrific ways. Jeff Taylor, thanks a lot. Uh, have fun there with what you do in Iowa, and and, uh, and be well. Thank you. Thanks, thanks again, Danny.